Hi, listeners. I'm Erin. I'm Amy. And welcome to our True Crime and Family Time podcast. The true crime part is obvious, is obvious right? Because who doesn't like true crime? The family part is Erin's my niece. We love talking true crime. Yes, we, we do. We have always enjoyed bringing each other um, stories that either one of us hadn't heard before. And we figured why not record ourselves having a conversation about it. So welcome. Welcome our one or two, maybe three listeners. Hi, hopefully. mom. <laughs> Hi, sister. Yes. <laughs> our one listener. We are so excited about our f- very first podcast. Today is March 9th, 2023. Our first story is actually, I'm going to be presenting to my aunt. I first heard about um, Amy Burridge and Becky Thompson several years ago when I read a phenomenal book called The Darkest Night by Ron Francel. If you have some time or you love true crime, you know, um, nonfiction novels, that is definitely a book to check out. But what really caught my eye is that it took place in Casper, Wyoming. And at that time, about 15 years ago, that's where I was living. I guess we're going to get right into it. And this, um, this case starts with two horrific guys. They're named Jerry Lee Jenkins and Ronald Leroy Kennedy. Just to give a little bit of a background, Jerry Lee Jenkins was born on December 7th, 1943 in Rollins, Wyoming, to Edgar Thomas Jenkins and Dorothy Margaret Mulnix Jenkins. I'm so sorry if I slaughter names here. <laughs> I promise. That's a big I, name. I promise I'm doing <laughs> my best. <laughs> um, and, and we might say a lot of ands and ums, and but that's it's okay. It's our first and we'll get better. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's a little bit nervous. I'm not nervous. You're nervous? I'm excited. So I think it's a mixture of both. So Jerry was the oldest child and he had one brother and two sisters. Um, His one sister, Barbara, had died before she was even a year old on Christmas Eve in 1948 when Jerry was five years old. Um, Jenkins. Yeah. I mean, anything involving children, I think is is really hard. Um, and let's just put out there, I, like whatever this case is about, or even for the future one, yeah. of course, there's going to be sympathy for murderers or people who do horrific things when they were a child, things when, that was out of their control of growing up, but it doesn't excuse actions as an adult. No. And we, I know me and you have talked about this several times. Um, when you're a child, you don't have a choice. However, when you you don't have a choice of how you're raised, right? But when you get older, you do have a choice to either be better because of your past or be bitter because of your past. And you choose after you are old enough to understand right from wrong. That's when I think the decision has to be made one way or another. And then you're accountable for your actions. Well said, Erin. Well said. <laughs> well, thank All you. All right. Without further ado. Yes. Yeah, so Jenkins, tell me more. Yeah. So Jenkins' dad was a truck driver who wasn't home a lot when he was growing up. And when his dad was home, he was drunk. He would beat his wife. He would beat Jerry. He would beat his siblings. And of course, that led to Jerry eventually getting into drugs and committing all sorts of crimes. 
Um, even before the age of 18, he was arrested multiple times as a teenager. He ran away, which I mean, who wouldn't in that case? Like, yeah, I do. I do understand that part of it. Um, however, twice he was actually sentenced to serve time at the Wyoming's boys school. And of course, this was all before he was 18. And so once he turned 18, he offered to go into the army when he was in the boys school and they accepted that offer. And so they released him. What he did is he went AWOL before even starting boot camp. So he ran away from that too, which I think was a life-changing decision because at this time he was 18 and this was his first decision as an adult. And I think it just went downhill after that. Then in 1968, there was one night that Jerry, at this time he was with Jim Kennedy. You're going to hear the name Kennedy later on, but uh, Jim is a brother to Ronald Kennedy. I'm just going to leave it at that for right now. Jerry and Jim raped a 19-year-old who was Jerry Jenkins' ex-girlfriend. They lured her into the car, said they were going to go get some dessert, drove her to a deserted area, raped her, dropped her off behind an apartment complex, told her not to tell anyone, don't call the cops. Well, she called the police. And of course. They were, uh, Jerry and Jim were arrested. And they were going to go to trial. And Jim Kennedy had his trial first, like the defense does when she got on tr- on the stand to testify against him. They tore her to pieces. And she, you know, you already have to relive the situation that you're testifying about. But when the defense comes at you in that aggressive, like, sort of way, and, and you being the victim, that is just demeaning in every sort of way so and I understand you have to defend your your client right that's what you're getting paid for but But it doesn't look good in the eyes of a jury yeah it doesn't look eyes good in the eyes of a jury to do that like it's no it's uh yeah I hate that so Jim did end up getting um convicted for that rape and sentenced and then uh Jerry Jenkins his trial was supposed to be second well before Jerry's trial, um, she was like, I can't, I can't do it again. I won't, I, I will not go through that again. They ended up dropping the charges. They so are, they needed her testimony. They needed her testimony. They couldn't do it without her. So they ended up dropping Jerry's charges for that. And then um, he would go on to rob stores and, you know, do petty crimes along the way. Be the great guy that he is. Exactly. Um, so now I'm going to tell you a little bit, a little bit about, um, Ronald Leroy Kennedy. So this is actually the brother of Jim Kennedy, who was already sentenced for that crime that Jerry was released for. So his younger brother, brother, Ronald Leroy Kennedy was born to Hilda Kennedy and father Ernest Leroy Kennedy. He was raised with four sisters and a brother and Kennedy's father has been described just like Ronald. I mean, to tell you the truth, the apple did not fall far from that tree. (laughs) He was described as lazy. He hardly ever worked, but he sure loved going to bars while Hilda was out working probably two, three, four jobs to support the family. Her husband- Sounds like a great catch. (laughs) I know. Her husband was uh, busy getting drunk, abusing the kids. um, And- 
the husband always claimed to be sick and that he couldn't work yet. He was fine coming home drunk from the bar when she was out working. And, um, women don't put up with that. I know. Women, I, know. I know. Just don't, just it's, don't put up with You it. don't need another child to raise, right? If you're raising yeah. kids and you don't need them ruining your children. No. And that's the thing is I'm sure it doesn't say this, but I'm sure because of that, um, Kennedy, had night terrors it said growing up he thought um men were coming through the walls to get him and um he had anger issues I mean like I Shocking. said yeah it sounds just like his father and mm-hmm. um and so I couldn't find a whole lot more from Kennedy from his youth but um it was said that he was in and out of boy schools. And now I never saw a story like the rape of the 19 year old, like Jerry did, but Kennedy was also, I mean, it was just known around town that he was not a good, he was not a good. When the police know your kids' names by their, you know, by their first name, there's a, there's a problem. Yes. And so then in 1966, Kennedy married a girl named June. But they divorced in 1968 when June was four months pregnant with their child. Ronald beat her so bad just because she didn't want to have sex with him. And she um, ended up going to the hospital and had a broken nose. And I just, I don't know why. I mean, I'm glad she left. I will just, I'll just say that. And then fast forward to September. It's like, Ronald, remember what your dad did to you and the nightmares you had and the horrible upbringing you had, and you're going to bring a child into the world doing the same thing. Same thing. Yep. And, um, I, I know now fast forward to September 24th, 1973, Jerry Jenkins was 29 years old and Ronald Kennedy was 27. So Jenkins had a three-year-old and a one-month-old. Now, really listen to these numbers for a second. So Jenkins, who was 29 years old, had a one-month-old baby that was in the hospital and was supposed to be coming home from the hospital that day and around 1 p.m. So he was supposed to schedule to go to work. His car was broke down, so he borrowed his 18-year-old wife's car. Again, he was 29 years old, he had a three-year-old and a one-year-old with his 18-year-old wife. So he was well into his 20s. <laughs> when she was... With a 15-year-old. 15 years old when they when they had their first child. So I'm guessing the first time that they were intimate was not the time she got pregnant. I mean, I'm just yeah. going to put that out there, uh, right? And so yep. um, he was supposed to be going to work. And being home by one so that he could take his wife to go get their child. So um, 1 p.m. comes and goes and his wife is still at home with their three-year-old. And assuming it's safe to say that she was probably getting angry. I know I know, I would get angry at this point. if I, I would be livid. I would. Oh, I, I don't even know. And so. I can, I, whatever you're, you're going to tell me, I would be. Yeah, I would be livid. It doesn't sound like it's going to be good. No. Well, it's obviously not good. We're doing a case about him. Exactly. (laughs) So a little while later, a friend of hers had stopped over and said, oh, yeah, I saw your husband. He was with Kennedy and they were drinking at the bar and playing pool. (laughs) And so his wife called his work because he was scheduled to work that day. That's why he took her car. 
his boss had told her that not only did he not go to work that day, but he had been calling into work sick for several days before this. This wasn't the first day. And so instead of going to work like a good Jerry's husband, been up to no good. I mean, sounds just like his dad, right? Too sick to work, but can go out to the bar and play pool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so now on September 24th, 1973, Kennedy was 27 years old and on his second marriage. And just like Jenkins, he was a horrible father. He too hated going to work. And so he was married, unemployed. He and he and his wife lived with his mom. What a winner. <laughs> what a basement dweller Kennedy, huh? Yes. So that day was Jenkins payday. But since he called into work, he couldn't go and pick up his check. So he told Kennedy, you know, just go in and, and tell him I'm, you know, you know, you're there to pick up my check for me. So he went in and his boss ended up giving Kennedy his check. And, you know, if you have a sick child, a sick one month old and a three-year-old and an 18 year old wife, what do you, instead of, um, I don't know, buying them food or paying bills, he took his paycheck and spent it on alcohol. Oh my gosh. And so, um, yeah, so they were just having a grand old time. They were driving around for hours looking for girls to pick up. And yeah, so. So they're both gonna... married. Yep. With children. Yeah, young children, yes. Mm-hmm. And out looking looking for drinking and looking, looking for girls. Yeah. Drinking and driving and looking. I for... bet Jenkins' wife was livid. I'm telling you. And it is said that she was like planning on leaving him. Like after he didn't show up at one, like she had packed her stuff and she was planning on leaving him that day. She was just for her girl for her, for him to come home so that she could confront him. And I mean, I would have been right. Girl. Okay. So now we're going to start talking about, um, the women what I would have done is I would have had my friend take me to wherever they were and I would have took my car right like where they said that's they saw probably them. what I would have done that's while they were inside <laughs> just take the spare key and yeah. just take it off that yeah I would have I would have loved that <laughs> yeah um okay so now we're going to talk about the women of this story so Becky Thompson was 18 years old and she lived with her sister, Amy, who was 11, and their mother, Tony. Now, um, on September 24th, Tony came home from work. And on that evening, she had asked Becky to go to the store to pick up some groceries. They had just gotten back from a trip to Mexico where um, Tony's husband was working. And so oh. they needed groceries. Becky was, you know, I'll, I'll go, you know. And as she was walking outside, she saw her little sister, Amy, and uh, her friend, Danny, playing outside. And she asked them both if they wanted to go to the store. Well, Danny's mom said, you know, it's getting late. It was around 9 p.m. And you have school tomorrow. So Danny wasn't allowed to go. Amy's like, yep, I'll go. You know, the 11-year-old sister. So they both head off to 
a store called Thriftway. Um, and that's when they encounter um, Jenkins and Kennedy. So the girls go into the store and get their groceries. Now, it didn't take them long. They come out and Becky realizes that her rear right tire is flat. And this angered her because she had just got, that was a brand new tire. She had just gotten it fixed. And she's like, oh, great, you know? So she's kind of looking, you know, and these two gentlemen, I'm using that term loosely, Jenkins and Kennedy, offer to help them change their tire. Well, they started jacking it up and then they realized that they didn't have a spare tire. So what they were going to do is, go to a mini mart across the street to see like a gas station to see if they could fix the tire. So Becky sent Amy to the payphone at the mini mart to call their mom and let Tony know that they were running a little late because she, they had a flat tire and that some nice men were going to be helping them. And this was about nine 30. So it didn't take them long in the, um, the grocery store. And, um, after Amy hung up the phone with her mom, she had a little bit of change in her pocket. So she, um, wanted to go into the store and, and grab some candy. And while Amy was in the mini mart, the two men, Ronald, uh, Kennedy and Jerry Jenkins tried getting, Becky to go with them they were like oh well we just have to run to try to get this tire fixed why don't you come with us really quick and Becky was like I'm not leaving my 11 year old sister by herself at 9 30 at night <laughs> and I can't believe they were like they literally thought that was gonna where she'd yeah. be like oh yeah I'll just leave my sister here without knowing where I'm at or that's fine yeah and so Becky yeah. was like no I'll go get her you know, and hurry her along. So she went in and got her. And I think that kind of gave Becky a little bit of a sour feeling or a pit in her stomach because. Oh yeah, when probably. She, when she, she hurried Amy along and they walked back out, she kind of paused um, getting in the vehicle with the men, even though they were like, we'll give you a ride home, you know, no problem. Well, when she did that pause, Kennedy, who had a pocket knife, um, which Becky and Amy didn't know this at the time, but it was the pocket knife that they used to slash the tire in the first place mm -hmm. and why they had a flat tire. Um, he put that like in Becky's back, like towards her rib cage and said, get in the car. And so that, of course, started the abduction of Becky and Amy. Um, so needless to say, they were not taking the girls home. Um, they started driving them around, mind you, still drinking. Um, and, the, and Amy asked, are you going to murder us? And Jenkins and Kennedy told the girls that they had a friend who was involved in a hit and run and he ended up being paralyzed and the description of the vehicle and the two girls that were in the vehicle um matched 
Amy and Becky and their car that they were driving. And Amy and Becky were like, we were out of town that, that couldn't have been us. And I feel like this was like a mind torture game for Jenkins and Kennedy. Um, it was just something more that gave them a look, the girls a little hope that this was going to have a good outcome, right? They were going to end up. Taking right. And so um, I, I think Amy and Becky by this time are having a bad feeling, having a little bit of hope on um, and Becky actually tried to open the door at one point to get out of the vehicle. And that just angered the, the guys, uh, Jenkins and Kennedy. So they ended up um, punching the girls in the face. Um, they were choking them. The girls were like huddled together down in the so back. Jenkins, Jenkins was driving? Jenkins was driving. Kennedy was in the passenger seat with the knife. Okay. And at some points, um, you would, I don't know if everyone's mom does this, but like when your mom's driving and you're little and she's trying to get you and your siblings to like, be good. She'll like wave her hand at the back behind the seat. Yeah. So reach in the back. I feel like picture in my mind that Kennedy was kind of doing the reach around with the knife and their legs, which was just another I mean, torture to them. And so then eventually, yes, the girls like huddled together and Becky was really trying to protect Amy um, from the knife, from the hit, the blows, from everything. And while they were trying to be a big sister. Yeah. And so while Jenkins was driving the girls and Kennedy around, um, they actually started to go up Casper Mountain and his tires were not super great on the vehicle and his car started overheating. And so they ended up turning around and going down the mountain. And then they ended up driving the girls um, to a canyon about 30 miles out past Casper and, and Alcova, uh, which is a, a lake out there. And they parked the car on Fremont Canyon Bridge. And there was a little shack by the bridge. And they basically told the girls that that's where the man is that was paralyzed. And he, um, Kennedy told the girls that he was going to take Amy to go talk to the, to the guy first. And Becky was like, please take me or let's go together. Like, please let me go first. And he said no. And he took Amy out of the vehicle. Jenkins was in the car with Becky. I guess he started saying that he was always the weak one, you know, in comparison to Kennedy and that he didn't want to go back to jail. And I'm not sure. I don't think Becky was sure quite why he was saying these things if he was having a change of heart for a split second or if he was actually trying to give her like a heads up of what was to come like why would you be worried about going back to jail like you know yeah you know and so then Kennedy returned to the car without Amy and he said that the man was talking with Amy and that they were supposed to, they drove about, um, you know, like 
20 feet away from where they were originally parked and um, said that they were looking for a sign from the guy and then they were supposed to go back and Becky was going to talk to the, they were going to take Becky to talk to the guy. Well, when they parked, Kennedy climbed in the back seat. He basically tore off Becky's clothes and he raped her. And they're in the back seat while Jenkins was sitting in the front seat watching, smoking a cigarette. And when Kennedy was done, he got back in the passenger seat and Jenkins climbed on top of her and she told them I I'm a virgin I I don't I've never done this before and the more that she it seemed to like hurt her the more they it, they enjoyed it and they were kind of getting off on that oh my gosh and then um you know this story of the two sisters the things that they say to each other during this um this whole time so when amy was walking away she looked back and she said i love you becky and little did becky know that would be the last time she would see her sister how heartbreaking after the two men raped becky in the back seat she actually thanked them for not letting her little sister see what they had done to her i mean she wasn't just her protect. I mean, they're, they loved each other. They needed each other. She probably that- was more like a mother figure to Amy being that age gap. Yes. Yes. And feeling responsible because one, she asked her to go to the store and two, they tried to get Amy to leave her or Becky to leave her at the store and, yes. and Becky wouldn't. And so I'm sure she's Either. thinking this is all my fault, you know, but thank you yeah. for not letting her see you do this to me. But at this point, she doesn't know that Amy no. is. She dead. thinks she's in that chat with the man. So Becky. Or at least she's if, hoping. Right. So Becky puts her, asks if she can put her, you know, bra and underwear and clothes back on. And they only give her her red sweater and pants. So then they drive back to the bridge. And at this time. Jenkins and Kennedy both get out of the car and they open the back door to where Becky was and one is standing on each side of the door and they escort her out of the car and they each have a hold of one of her arms and they both walk her to the bridge and Jenkins or I'm sorry Kennedy says we're gonna meet your sister right here and that word here must have been something that they have talked about earlier because as soon as they said here both of the men tried picking her up and throwing her over the bridge now they were they had been drinking however becky said that they weren't slurring their words and they were walking you know straight but um she was fighting back and they were unable, even though it was like three feet, the ledge was, they could not pick her up and throw her over. So she wasn't an 11 year old. Exactly. Exactly. And so I, you know, when they start, when they were trying to do that, I can't imagine the things that were going through Becky's head, like where her sister really was at this point. Like I'm sure hoping and praying that this wasn't what happened to her sister. Right. 
for and sure. So, um, so then uh, Jenkins starts strangling Becky. He has his hands around her throat, and Kennedy said, "Make sure she's dead." And in Becky's head at that moment, she knew she had a decision to make. She either let them strangle her and throw her over this bridge, or she can pre go limp herself and pretend to, you know, pass out and hopefully survive, you know? And so that's what she decided to do was to not fight them anymore, pretend that they had choked her out and let them throw her over so that she wasn't like passed out when she was falling and hit the water. So. And to she, make those, that decision such like, you know, it had it, like, it was like split second decision. Right. Like she had to make that. Right. Cause I mean, how long do you have before? Like, what would you choose? Would exactly. you, would you rather be dead before you go over? Because you yep. know, it's going to hurt. Right. Yes. Or. Yep. Mm. And so, um, so she goes limp and they throw her over. Now, mind you, um, we do have an Instagram and we will be putting the pictures up there. It is called true crime and family time. Um, but this Canyon was like 140 feet drop and it's pure rock and Canyon and very minimal water at the bottom. And oh yeah, I saw, I saw the pictures you sent me and yeah, like how how anyone survived that fall yeah i'll never know how becky survived it yeah so she she as she goes over about 40 feet down she hits something um a rock or a boulder and it actually catapults her further out into the water and little did she know at this time that is what saved her life that night as she was struggling to try to get up, she realized that she couldn't move her legs and she had never broken a bone before, but in her mind, she said, I, I knew my legs had to have been broken. I can't move them at all. So as she's struggling to get to the surface of the water, her pants come down because she can't shimmy her legs to keep her pants up or move them at all. And so once she reached the surface of the water, I mean, it was freezing that night um, and she didn't know if the men knew that she was alive. She didn't know where her sister was. She's in excruciating pain and she couldn't scream like she couldn't make any noise. She didn't want them to know that she was still alive and come down to try to finish the job. So she crawled out of the water and with using her arms and like kind of propped herself in between two boulders and used her hair. She had very long, you know, dark hair and she used her hair to cover herself up because she was naked now from the waist down. And, um, that's where she stayed that night. And, and I cannot imagine not being able to yell out because I haven't broken like a big bone, but I stubbed my toe, like where I broke yeah. my toe. And not only did, you know, the whole house knows at the moment when I, I do it, but even right. for like, you know, the, 
day the healing process like if there's time like, like you scream out like oh like if it nope. if, if it gets bumped or yes like, you don't take that fall and just get broken leg no and we'll talk more about that in a little bit but no i mean i'm a lot of things that she did this night and even into the future surprised me a lot of things that she did I mean, she was just, you can tell what an incredibly strong woman she was, even at the, you know, young age of 18. Yeah. And so um, she didn't want to fall asleep. She kind of, in her head, if I fall asleep, I'm not going to wake up. And so she kept telling herself, I just need to wait until I see. Now my- you lived there. So how cold does it get? So at night in September. It was in, in the end of September 24th. Um, and it gets really, really cold at nighttime. However, the, another thing is the wind out there is incredible. Like I, I'm not exaggerating when I say a 30 mile an hour wind is average, like that's a normal day out there. And so I didn't look up how, like what the weather was that night. I know it was around 30 degrees. So, I mean, freezing and she was wet and no pants the only thing is is at least like because I'm assuming that she's had she has cuts and bleeding or whatever and at least like it being cold like that it slows the blood yes yes and she really is an incredible woman for all that she went through and survived um this time of year in the fall in this part of the world where Wyoming is, they have what they call false dawn, which means where she was in the canyon, the Milky Way releases this, like, um, it looks like sunlight and it looks like it's getting bright out, like it's going to be morning. And it's not, it's like several hours before it starts getting light. And that happened that night. It's like, she sees this light and she's like, okay, it's going to be, you know, more yeah, you, she thinks think the sun's coming get, up and it's not it's not and it's just I mean th- throughout this whole story she just keeps kind of getting let down by everyone and everything and it's just it really is incredible so she finally makes it to you know dawn and she starts um crawling on her back so we'll talk a little bit about injuries right now um she couldn't like army crawl on her stomach using her arms because her stomach was falling out of her. And oh my gosh. She had to be on her back and literally crawl using only her arms because her pelvis was broken to get out of this 140 foot canyon. And, and for anyone listening, do look at the pictures because I'm trying to picture her crawling not army crawling but crawling right. backwards yes. out this canyon it's not like a slow incline and the rescuers that had you know equipment with them to they had trouble getting in and out of that canyon with all four of their limbs and and she had her arms on her back <laughs> she had um, determined she, determination to get out of that canyon and survive she, absolutely was yes a hundred percent so she finally makes it up close to the bridge that morning a little old couple carl and dorothy stresser 
decided they were going fishing and they normally take like a more main road to get there and they decided to take the scenic route through the canyon so around eight o'clock they're driving up to this you know fremont canyon and they see something in the distance that's bright red and it's out of place and as they get closer it's becky she only has the the red sweater on she um, is waving her arm. She's using her hair to try to cover up the bottom part of her legs. And she's trying to wave down their car. So as soon as Carl and Dorothy see this, Carl stops the car. He jumps out and, and he tears his jacket off to get it to her, to cover her up. And he's like, what happened? You know, what happened to you? And she was like, I was abducted and raped and thrown off the bridge. And my sister is down there. And um, Dorothy gets out of the car and she had a blanket in the vehicle. And she grabbed that and wrapped Becky And they were up. an older couple? Yes, um, so retired. Like, yep, so going like grandma and grandpa, grandma absolutely. and grandpa, they have blankets yeah. in their car. <laughs> They're prepared for every situation. Yeah. Thank God. And so Dorothy wraps Becky up in this blanket and they both pick her up and they put her in the back of their car. And Becky keeps saying, my sister, my 11 year old sister. So Carl goes back to the bridge. Now, mind you, she was beaten so bad. Her face, one of her left eye was swollen shut. Her, there was blood coming off of her face, down her legs. It was, her legs were cut so bad that you could see the bone. Her stomach was falling out of her. And oh my gosh, knew that two things, this girl needed medical attention right now. However, if there was another girl that was in this situation that needed help, he had to help her too. So he ran over to the bridge and he looked over just trying to see if he could see anything, any sign of life down there. And he just could not. And I'm sure like she was saying, my little sister, I don't know if she was saying 11, but. Well, if you look at those pictures, when he looked over, he's probably thinking it's a miracle one survived. Exactly. It's probably impossible that a second survived. Young and you girl. have to you, so he had to help the one that was in front of him. Yeah. So he jumps back in the car and he, they drove about, um, well, to the closest store, which was in Alcova, um, a, like a little, you know, corner store. And they, um, Dorothy stayed in the car with Becky and Carl ran into the store to call for help. So the ambulance and the police show up, the sheriff, Bill Estes and the ambulance show up to the store and that's when he the sheriff realizes that she Becky matched the description of two missing girls that had been called in the night before by their mother Tony she had called around 12:30 to report that her daughters had gone to the store and gave them a call said they had a flat tire and they never returned home and they did not have any investigators on at night at this time. So they took the report. However, they didn't start the investigation 
until around 8 a.m. is when they had an investigator coming in, which just happened to be around the same time that Becky was taken to the store by Dorothy and Carl. And so once he realized that she was one of these missing sisters, he knew there was another one. So he um, instructed a investigator, Dave Duvall, to go to the hospital where Becky was going to be. And he went to the canyon where she said, where Becky said all of this happened. And he was going to be looking for Amy at this point. He did not want to wait for a whole dive team. He tied a rope to himself and started going down to look. He also said that he could see exactly where Becky had crawled out of the canyon because there was a trail of her blood going from the bottom of the canyon to the top. He saw exactly where she had come out of the canyon. And I believe that's where he started his investigation looking for oh my gosh. little sister. And so once they got to the hospital, um, this is honestly an incredible part of the story. So Jenkins and Kennedy did not expect Becky to survive this, right? I don't think a lot of people expected her to survive, but she was so determined because she, they were calling each other by their first names. They, she had a description. She knew what they were driving. And so while she's at the hospital, this um, detective, Dave Davala, said that even though Becky was beaten up and bloodied and bruised and broken, she was conscious and she knew what she was saying to them. And she told them, a man named Jerry, who was um, fat and greasy, and a guy who called himself Kenny, who was uh, skinny and crazy-eyed. And <laughs> and I saw the pictures you sent me. Yes, and just that description alone, like they could have they could have re- recognized who it was because right? it, it was to it. <laughs> That her description just like that was to a T. Well, and because of their run-ins in the past, they knew who these guys were. They knew exactly who she was talking about. And so um, Jenkins had uh, dropped Kennedy off at his house around 2 a.m. And then it was reported that they were seen together earlier that morning. Once the investigators knew who they were looking for, they went to... Kennedy's home where he lived with his wife and mother and that's where they found him and then in his mom's basement I'm probably that's what I'm I'm assuming (laughs) um and then Jenkins was not at home at the time however they did find him like 30 feet from the courthouse (laughs) walking to a liquor store that he had just robbed like with somebody else several times. And when the police stand up guy that Jerry and Ronald, (laughs) I know. Right. And uh, when they losers, when they told Jenkins that he was being arrested for rape and murder, he was like, like shocked. shocked. Yes, like, he like had, what I can't, what 
Probably. I wonder if he thought like no way they found Becky, right? I I like I yes. wonder if he thought it was like somebody else and like something else. Yeah. Yeah. So um however, because it was such a short time. Yes. Like because like, it was still morning, right? He, it was 8 a.m. that she made it to but the, I wonder what time does it was there a time when they went to go arrest Jenkins? Around 10 a.m. I would say yeah, by so like they were being arrested. He was probably and, shocked, shocked, <laughs> shocked. Like, how did how did you know what I was doing? What what um, Ronald and I were doing? I know, and and however, he Jenkins had the pocket knife on him that Kennedy had used to lure, you know, get Becky in the car and slash the tires. Now, when Kennedy got arrested, he was like, "It wasn't me. Like, you should let me out so that I can." help you find the men who did this to these women like sure ronald yeah and then we have jerry jenkins who was like it wasn't me he made me do it i was i don't know he did say he did tell becky that he was the he was the weak one he was the weak one and he didn't want to go back to jail yes him and kennedy had been together earlier and that he told kennedy he wanted to you know, turn himself in and, and Kennedy said that you can't do that. Um, or I'll kill you. And like, who knows if that is even true with how much these guys lie and manipulate and try to get out of anything of being accountable for anything. You just don't know, really, you don't know what to, to believe with these guys. Their mom had to go ID Amy that same day while Becky was in the hospital recovering. A and parent's so, worst nightmare. Could you imagine? No. No. Going to ID your, your dead baby. We're getting to um, more. It's going to get a little graphic here. We will give a warning before it gets too graphic. But um, I couldn't imagine with her injuries and, and what we know now, I would I wouldn't want to see my child like that. You know, I don't think any parent would. Yeah. So. But she, um, but she, it was just her, so. Exactly, yeah. And so to... uh, Kennedy and Jenkins were arrested for the murder of 11-year-old Amy and the rape and attempted murder of Becky. They were held on $275,000 bond. And, you know, you think this was 1973. 1973 was. That was 50 yeah. years ago. 50 years ago. So yeah. on September 24th this year, it will be exactly 50 years since Amy passed away. So the trial for Kennedy and Jenkins was moved to Cheyenne because of the publicity in Casper, Wyoming. Stated that several months before the trial, which um, was held in April of 1974, Becky was getting these like death threats. And it was said to be from the family of Kennedy. So due to that, the detective Dave Davola, he actually escorted Becky to Cheyenne. And then she stayed in a hotel down there um, during the trial. And he stayed in a hotel room right next to her just to kind of be her bodyguard. Her protector. Um, He was definitely protective over her. And he said that's when they got really close. He sat through the trial the whole time while she was testifying and everything. But um, they really did become really close 
um, at this time. And we'll talk more about that later. But um, again, Jane. Yeah, because was it talked at all about her, like her father or anything or? No. So he uh, probably became like a father figure to her, right? Absolutely. Well, and I was going to mention too, he actually ended up walking her down the aisle when she eventually oh. got married. But um, yeah, oh. it, the only thing it says about her father is that like her mother was married to someone who was not her father at the, you know, at this time. So Jenkins pled not guilty and Kennedy pled not guilty by reason of insanity. Becky took the stand and she basically said that what drove her to survive was she had to make sure that these men were punished for what they did to her and her sister. So while Becky was identifying, uh, she identified both Jenkins and Kennedy. And while she was identifying Kennedy, he like raised his finger to his throat and did like the slit throat motion across, um, basically threatening her there right there in the courtroom. And then what a jerk. I know. And he, he, these threats were coming. I mean, he tortured this woman, not only physically, but after he was locked up, mentally emotionally like he tortured her until the very end becky said that when she told the guys that she was a virgin it just made them attack her more forcefully becky also testified that when both men were walking her to the bridge they did not appear drunk as they were walking they were steady and their speech was not slurred because even though Jenkins had only pled not guilty, his defense was that he was too drunk to be accountable for his actions. I do want to say this next part we're going to be talking about um, is very going to be very graphic. So if you have a hard time hearing about the girls' injuries, just skip past for a few minutes because that's what we're going to be talking about for the next couple minutes. On the stand, Becky's family doctor, who was actually the doctor that went to the hospital when she, right after she was rescued, um, he testified that although Becky was cold, badly injured, she was alert, conscious, and cooperative in the hospital. She suffered from multiple broken bones, a broken pelvis, yeah, yes. that's why she couldn't, ha she didn't have a use of her legs. And so it wasn't a permanent thing. It, you know, luckily she did physically um, recover. So the doctor also testified that um, she had deep lacerations and that some were so deep that you could see her bones. Other medical experts testified that the serious facial and throat injuries that Becky had were not due from the fall from the bridge, but rather it was due to the strangulation and the blunt force strikes to her face. Um, since Becky was a virgin, all the signs that she was raped was evident in all ways possible. And then moving on to Amy. So the um, medical examiner, who was the former Natrona County coroner, was the expert that testified on Amy's behalf. And he said that 
Amy suffered severe damage to the structure of the base of her brain. They described how Amy actually hit the bottom of the canyon head first, causing her. Oh spine my gosh. It caused her spinal cord to be pushed into her brain. I did mention this earlier when Becky was falling, she hit like a rocker the side of the canyon and it like projected her out into the middle. So where Amy landed, it was in about three feet of water. At it, least it sounds like her death was instant. instant. Yes. So she instant. wasn't laying down there. At oh suffering. my gosh. No. Amy also suffered multiple rib fractures, a collapsed left lung, and extensive bleeding in the soft tissue around her heart and the base of her neck. In the car, when they found Jenkins' car that they were driving around in, they found hair that was consistent to the hair that Becky and Amy's. And um, mm, there okay. was also, there was blood in the car as well. And they did say that the blood was the type, the same type as Becky and Amy. So again, they couldn't do DNA testing back then, but it was consistent. Right the same blood type. The DA also called Becky's optometrist who testified that there was an uh, eye lens found in the floor of the car. And that was the lens that he had fitted for Becky. There were two other witnesses that testified that they were actually sitting in their car waiting for their wives who were in the Thriftway, the store shopping. And they saw Ronald Kennedy standing outside of the car talking to Becky and Amy. And then he saw the girls get into the backseat of the car with Jenkins driving and Kennedy in the passenger seat. The defense ended up calling um, Kennedy's mom, who was Hilda Kennedy, who basically testified that Ronald turned out exactly like his father just like we had assumed earlier. And <laughs> she said and testified to Ronald Bean, and this is a direct quote, that he was odd, very odd. His mother testified that yes. his son <laughs> living in my house and he won't he he won't move. And oh, oh by the way, he's odd. odd. He's very odd. Yes. <laughs> And that, so, that's a good one. Well, and they also called one of his sisters and she said that basically Ronald was fine up until 1973. So the year before this happened, but they're well, how convenient. I know. And the sister who testified, her husband also testified. And I guess there was a time that Kennedy showed up to their house and he was drunk and angry and it took him, the husband and Ronald's sister about an hour to calm him down. And are they trying to prove that he has anger problems that I'm like, it doesn't prove that he's insane. It proves that he's <laughs> abusive, right? Like that's yeah. where I'm, yeah. I'm getting from this. Yeah, exactly. And then Ronald's, first wife, June, was called by the defense to testify 
about how Ronald had beat her to the point of needing to be hospitalized when she was four months pregnant. And the reason that he did that was because she didn't want to have sex with him. Another witness that was called was Clyde Harbo, who was an acquaintance of Ronald. And he said one night while he and June, which was Ronald's first wife, were hanging out at his mom's house. He said that Ronald had pulled up and jumped out of the car and started yelling profanities. And then he took out a gun and shot twice into a parked car. And this is all to try to prove that he's insane. (laughs) So Ronald's attorney also called an internal medicine doctor who saw Kennedy three times in 1972. This doctor testified that Kennedy was seen um, because he was complaining of having hives, dizziness, pain um, behind his ears and neck, exhaustion, weight loss, and to me, it sounds like it was more of an excuse not to work and to be lazy, kind of like his dad. But the the doctor said he didn't diagnose Ronald with any physical disorder or disease, but he attributed his um, symptoms to anxiety or nervousness. And so he did prescribe him a um, anti-anxiety medication. And, oh, he also um, diagnosed him with chronic sighing respirations. (laughs) Respirations. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So basically, Ronald, you were a wine ass in his, in your doctor's office, you were in there whining and so he gave you a head to kind of hold you because you didn't want to yes because you didn't want to do adult things you didn't you you want you like to make children you just didn't want to take care of them or oh oh my gosh (laughs) chronic sighing respiration that oh oh my god I don't even know that's crazy another doctor that Kennedy uh was examined by while he was um in jail And this physician who had diagnosed him with antisocial personality disorder with patterns of disturbed behavior, which I think explains all of that. They did did a psyche veil on him. They did, yes. They had a psyche veil on him. And so they... um, Kennedy's attorney tried to push the defense that Ronald was just having this schizophrenic episode on September 24th and 25th in 1973. But the doctor, Dr. Clark was like, no, no, Kennedy knew the difference between right and wrong and that he knew the difference and he knew the consequences of his actions. You don't have a schizophrenic break for two days. No. You don't, you don't, you're not fine. And then you have a schizophrenic break for September 24th and September 25th. And then you're fine again. Like the jury was out for about five hours when they found both Jenkins and Kennedy guilty for capital murder and attempted murder and rape for the sentencing portion. If for capital murder in Wyoming in 1974, there were two choices. You were acquitted or you got the death penalty. There was no in between at that time. 
Wait, if you were found guilty of murder, you either you were either acquitted or you got death. Yes, that was it. Those were the only two choices. Like, <laughs> and I know the death penalty is a little touch and go, like for with people well, on time, you know, beliefs on that. Yes, because innocent people do get found guilty, and yes, know. especially back at that time when they didn't have DNA, and then they go back in these cases and they test the DNA and they find out that there was a mistake made. I don't think they want to go back and see how many people they know that were innocent that were actually put to death because I think it would be astounding. I would rather let a guilty person stay in prison for the rest of their life than execute one innocent person. I, I I just, I would rather a life prison sentence for someone who's guilty than see someone die for a crime they did not commit because then they never have any they, they won't have the time to to no. ever prove that they're innocent if you if you kill them yeah and yeah that, it's a it's a hard one it really was like boom 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 so these crimes happened in september of 1973 where and their trial was april of 1974 and then this there was a, a New York Times news article that stated on um, April 30th, both men were convicted and sentenced to die before sunrise on September 25th. And that did not end up happening. Time the anniversary of of Amy's death and Becky's yeah. rescue. Back then it was very like they didn't have a lot of time to do appeals and all of that. The federal government was also kind of back and forth with if they were going to, you know, abolish the death penalty. And so then in 1977, Wyoming abolished the death penalty and both men were then their sentences were converted to life with parole. This is when. So how do you go from death penalty to life with parole? Like why, if they're on death penalty, why would you give them an option for parole? Well, especially when the first option was death or nothing. <laughs> like, yeah, I, right. Like, and so you're giving uh, them an option for parole. Some people never deserve parole. No. And Ronald and Jerry are definitely two that do it, not deserve. It. it said that they would go up for parole once a year. And Becky had to go to the parole hearings. Now, Jenkins never showed up to his parole hearings. He kind of took his, I feel like he was more accountable for his actions than Kennedy. However, Kennedy was fighting for a new trial. Like I said earlier, he was trying to say that he had um, insufficient counsel. He was trying to get a new trial. He would go to every parole hearing. And Becky was a survivor in and she was tortured by all of this. Um, her mother tried. I, to- I I think he did it on purpose. I that's what it sounds like. It sounds like he would do that just to torture her. Mm-hmm. And because it's- every time you go up for parole, she has to go and try to argue with them about why she should stay. And, yes, and have- why would you do it every year? That doesn't make any sense. Like, like yeah. it's re-victimizing the victim every year. Or and their then, families, if, if the victim's not allowed to do mm-hmm. it, to be there, to, or, or not allowed, but she the victim do, dies and they can't do it. She had to be there for her and Amy, you know, every, every time. Yeah. So that's um, a big weight to carry for her. Yeah. 
as well. And her mom tried. So they did end up going to Mexico after the trial. They uh, Becky and her mom went to Mexico where her uh, stepdad was working and they tried to live there for a year. They came back. She got a job at the police station for a little bit. And then she eventually got a job with the radio station uh, there in Casper, Wyoming. She did her best. Anything that I read about... What did she do at the radio station? She was an advertisement for the radio station. And um, anyone that was interviewed, you know, about her, they said that she was a practical joker, right? And that she really did her best to kind of put that behind her. But at the same time, I feel like she was tortured again. And I feel like the survivor's guilt was overwhelming for her. She did get married. She had a daughter in 1990 and she tried living a quote unquote normal life. However, I mean, every year she was having to go and relive Relive it every, she could not She also went to see a psychiatrist um, where at that time, like hypnotherapy was kind of a big thing. She went to see the psychiatrist for her PTSD and trauma. She did have some issues with drinking and drugs, like kind of on and off. She would go to rehab. And and I think that was kind of self-medicating for PTSD and trauma. Self-medicating. So the psychologist gave her some like sedation medication because she had that history of uh, drug use, it didn't affect her quite like the, the psychiatrist thought it did. She was sexually assaulted by the psychiatrist while he was supposed to be doing this hypnotherapy to help with her PTSD. Like, Oh my God. Yeah. So after that happened with her psychiatrist, she told um, her friends who kind of just attributed that to what had happened in her past. Like maybe it was the medication kind of messing with her a little bit, like her head. And they didn't really take it too seriously. Well, then she was in like a group therapy session and she mentioned this, what had happened to her uh, by her psychiatrist. And the therapist pulled her aside, asked her about, you know, the encounter between the years of 1990 and 1992, this psychiatrist was sued three times by patients for like sexual misconduct. And so her psychologist didn't, who's a mandated reporter. I don't know if they had that back then. Didn't report it or anything. Didn't he was never in trouble for what he did to Becky. No. And I don't know if that maybe wasn't a thing back then, the mandated reporting thing. I don't see why it wouldn't be. But after he all of that with Becky, he moved to Texas. But then he was extradited back to Wyoming on 15 counts of rape. He ended up. Shocker. I know, right? By the way, none of this was for Becky's crime. I feel like this is going to blow your mind. So. He ended up pleading guilty to two counts of second degree sexual assault. 
he got five years probation and a $50 fine. It gets worse. So 15, he got, they extradited him for 15 counts of rape. 15 counts. And I think it was first degree rape. So he takes a plea for, so he takes a plea for two. Two counts of second. Second degree, degree counts. And he doesn't get any prison. He just gets five years probation. And a $50 fine. But then. $50 fine. While he's on probation. One of his stipulations was that he could. He he didn't get his license taken away. He just couldn't treat female patients. While he's on probation. For five years. He ends up working as a psychiatrist. In a male prison where he should be locked up speechless on this how does he not 15 pounds yeah and, then, and you don't not a single any day prison. and you and you can keep your medical license you, you just, just can only treat males mm-hmm. yeah it's like unbelievable it, it, i don't know about after the five years but it just said one of the stipulations of his probation was that he couldn't treat female so i don't know about after probation. how about like, he doesn't treat any and actually send his butt to prison he should be in actually, the prison not working for them go put him in have him put him in prison and make him work in your infirmary yes save the state some money again kennedy and jenkins who jenkins never showed up to his parole hearings but kennedy was showing up every year for his parole hearings. He would get them once a year. And Becky would have to be re-victimized every single year. She started a campaign to make it so that Kennedy and Jenkins would not like would not get parole anymore hearings. She was going door to door getting signatures. However, Kennedy was waiting for um, the announcement of whether he would get a new trial or not. And all of Becky's friends said that she was terrified that he would get out, terrified that he would get a new trial. And and of course, if he gets a new trial, then they get a bond, they get, you know, so there's a chance that he could have gotten out. Um, and, and her well, friends- Well, yeah, because yes, he, yes, Jenkins and Kennedy were convicted. However, they were supposed to get the death penalty, but no, if they didn't get that, right, mm-hmm. and now it's, you know per you know parole hearings every year and then her psychiatrist it, that yes. happened right and and though he didn't get charged with anything with her he did get arrested for 15 counts and then they basically you know pissed that I'm away like, and I let him get away with like it that. not that it has to be justified but i mean i don't see how like why she would lie about her psychologist in the first place oh she I, didn't lie because how would she know like, yeah, no. she had no idea. She didn't know. She didn't no. know any other victim that what he was doing. You know, she was telling the truth. But I don't. Yeah. That for a second, I doubt Becky's story. And so then we come to 1992. So this was the year that, again, they were waiting to hear if that I graduated high school. <laughs> <laughs> um. So this was the year that. Kennedy was waiting to see if he would get a new trial. So there's another event that happens on July 31st. However, um, at this time, Becky had a two-year-old daughter and she had a new boyfriend and she was on a relapse at this time. She was drinking with her new boyfriend. um, And he said, 
about four times this week and that week she would watch this movie it was called ode to billy joe basically it it's based on a true story um about you know it's gonna be bad he gets drunk and he jumps off a bridge and it's because they call it a homosexual experience i mean it was a rape like i don't know why they put it nicely and see that's like especially back in the day and you wonder why it ate at him and why he yeah very well could have jumped off the bridge because now he's doubting what is he a homosexual when he's not right being raped by someone of the same sex is not a homosexual experience a hundred percent agree with that um becky's boyfriend said that she watched that movie four times and she bawled her eyes out every single time she watched that movie so then we come to july 31st 1992 Becky and her boyfriend had been drinking and she wanted to go visit the place that Amy died. And he's like, oh, I don't think this is a good idea. I'm, but I'm with her boyfriend. The more he pushed back, idea. no, the more he pushed back on her a little bit, like, suggest, like the more she was determined. She was like, no, like I'm doing this basically with or without you. Like, and so I'm sure he wanted to protect her a little, you know, She was driving erratically, very out of control. As she's driving to this bridge, she's kind of pointing out where things happen, right? The store, all of that. And mind you, so she was at this time again waiting um, to hear if Kennedy was going to be granted a new trial. And the DA that prosecuted Becky's first trial that convicted Jenkins and Kennedy he found out July 31st, it was a Friday, that Kennedy would not be getting a new trial. And he tried looking for Becky's phone number to call and tell her, and he couldn't find it. So he said to himself, it's okay, I'll call her on Monday. And I'll tell you why that's important in a second. Back to Becky, they get to the Fremont Canyon Bridge, her boyfriend, her and her daughter get out of the car and Becky sits on the edge of the bridge, dangling her legs, pointing out where Amy was found and where, you know, she slept that night and she starts crying and her boyfriend, uh, her daughter, her two-year-old daughter started crying and her boyfriend said, she doesn't need to, you know, your daughter doesn't need to see this right now. I'm going to put her in the car and and give you a, a minute. So he is leaning in the car and putting the daughter in the car seat when he hears a splash behind him and he looks back and Becky was no longer sitting on the bridge when he ran over there. um, She had either jumped or some say she could have like tried standing up, but because she was drunk, she slipped um, off the bridge. I personally I think she jumped and I'm just going to say it sounds like it to me too. It sounds like she complete speculation. I don't know, Becky. I never asked her. I couldn't like a hundred percent. Just my opinion is I think she jumped. And to be completely honest, I, I don't blame her. Like the guilt that she must have felt the terror of thinking that this guy was going to get out 
this guy that terrorized her, threatened her the whole time he was abducting, raping, and trying to murder her. Um, she was terrified of him. I don't, I don't blame her. She never had a moment like, no, in her adult life, reliving this, like, because even like, so when he would come up for parole, have the parole hearing, then they would, um, so they would have the parole hearing. And then, so then you have, she has a minute where she can like breathe and be like, okay, it's over. He was denied parole. But then yeah, short time later, you're now she's preparing because you know, in 11 months, 10 yeah. months, nine months that it's coming again. Yeah. So she was just re-victimized the whole rest of her life. Like yes. I cannot, well, I cannot and, imagine. And then to go back to the DA, Monday never came for Becky. He never got the chance mm-hmm. to tell her that Kennedy was not going to get a new trial. It was not granted. And, oh, and imagine how much that weighed on him too. Not like it, you don't know if it would have made a difference, but you know, it doesn't matter. It's the same thing. Like it would just weigh yeah. on him because the damage to her was already done. Right. The damage, the, the psychological guilt. damage that, yeah, it was already done. David Davola, the um, detective that was, got really close to Becky and stayed near her in Cheyenne he was actually a sheriff at this time in 1992. And he said that when he, he got the call um, that Becky had gone over the bridge and he said, when he, he got there, he said she had this long brown hair member that she like covered herself up with. Um, He looked down and he could see her hair and he knew, he knew it was her. Basically she was pulled out in the same spot that Amy was pulled out 19 years prior. And she had almost identical injuries that Amy, her little sister, Amy had. And then um, her funeral was on the anniversary of Amy's 19 year death. Her funeral, Becky's funeral was. And then she was, uh, Becky was cremated and they buried her ashes on top of her sister, Amy's grave. It just went like full circle, like, because Becky was supposed to die that day too. So, and this, a quote from the sheriff, the David Davola, he said, Becky was raped and murdered 19 years ago. She just died on Friday. And I think that holds so 100%. I mean, a piece, a big piece of her died in 1973 when her sister went over that bridge, a piece of her died with her. And then the rest of her died. I think the big piece of her died that day. I Uh, think. Yes. Yes. Now you can see why this story captivated me when I read it, you know, in the darkest night by Ron Francel. I haven't read that book, but I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to definitely really well. And the author get it on audible. He, um, was neighbors with Becky and Amy. Like he grew up in Casper, Wyoming when he was doing research for the book, he went out to the Canyon on a night. He was their neighbor. Yes. And he was like, 
I can't remember, maybe 12 when this happened. But yeah, he remembered Becky. He remembered Amy. Like there were, he said that Amy used to play ball with all of the boys in the neighborhood and that they would never let her bat when they played baseball. And he said <laughs> Becky was the cool older sister that would always involve the little kids, you know, the younger kids. So yeah, he was their neighbor. He knew them personally for the research for this book. He went out to the Fremont Canyon on a night that had similar weather and similar time of year that when Becky you know, in 1973, when she had to survive through the night. And he said he could, like, he could barely do it as a full grown man with all of his limbs and just crawling down there. Oh, yeah. Off the bridge. And I mean, I think just the- talking about it doesn't do it justice. You no. have to see the pictures. But I did just look it up and it said that Ron was 16. Okay. Thank you. Yes. Thank yeah, you. He was um, I, I appreciate that. And so, but yeah, so that was a really good book. That's what got me into this, uh, true crime of Becky and Amy. Um, it's honestly one of the saddest stories I can really think of because of how it came full circle. It was hard to research. Because as bad as it is, Amy's death, though horrendous and tragic, was easier than Becky's death. Becky's death last, yeah, I agree, it lasted 19 years. Her murder lasted 19, her torture and murder lasted 19 years, yeah. And so... And so when it, so when it came back, they, that they, they, they were going to have a trial, what were they going to do? But would she still had to go with the... So every year when she was, uh, she did the uh, campaign so that they would never get parole again. So actually that was the decision that was made on that, that they would not get a new trial and that they would never have parole ever again. I don't know if it would have changed anything, but it would have stopped a lot of torture that she was going through. Now the PTSD, just a little bit, a little bit of torture. Honestly, I don't know if that would have changed the outcome, but, and, and I don't blame the DA or anything for not getting, I mean, who would have thought it would have been, even if she would have done it anyways, she could have went knowing like my job was done Yeah, and they're never getting out. Yes. And I, you I know what know I mean? Like the DA is probably kicking himself because he was never he able to get his his that you know message to Becky just because he couldn't find her phone number because he couldn't find her phone number and he said I'll tell her on Monday it sounds like they really took Becky under their ring like the DA the they sure did the investigator I feel like that had a lot to do with Kennedy's like his threats towards her because at first it was kind of like a you know security guard kind of thing but that David Davola the one that became the sheriff he walked her down the aisle in her wedding to her husband. He really, really got very close with the family and Becky. Um, I think he was the reason she got that temporary job at the police station. I mean, 
I think he saw he, they, he was a father figure for her he was and he's he must have saw something in her and everyone that they said that she was a fun girl to be around she was funny she was you know she had this she was just starting her life 18. just starting her life 18. She, so she had just started her senior year that September and high school so she wasn't even graduated yet. oh no oh it's terrible so Jerry Jenkins died in 1998 at the age of 54 in a Wyoming state prison and Ronald Kennedy is 76 years old and is currently still a resident of Wyoming state prison where he needs to be for the rest of his life absolutely with no parole and exactly. so thank you all so much for listening to our very first true crime and family time podcast if i sounded yeah, thank you. excited about murder or giggled or laughed or said and um or but it was oh, all nerves it was just nerves and excitement for There's gonna be you know, a lot of ands and a lot of um and a lot we'll of butts and we'll get better yes yeah that's it. So, we'll get better um just be kind to yourself be kind to others and do not abduct rape and murder anyone yes please don't just don't don't do it be a good human until next time <laughs>